One of my favorite ways to invest is real estate, but not everyone wants to handle tenants and toilets. Enter Fundrise. They make it easy to invest in real estate with their flagship fund. Now, as always, you always have to carefully consider the investment objectives and risks of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. But right now, demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. And the Fundrise flagship fund plans on going on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with just as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash PFP. As always, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash PFP. That's fundrise.com slash PFP. This is a paid advertisement. Spring is a great time of year to do some cleaning around the house and clean up your finances. And something else that you can do for your family this spring is shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius as part of your financial planning for the year. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses, things like mortgage payments, credit card payments, car loans, or even college costs. I have a wife and two kids, with a third on the way, by the way, and business partners that all depend depend on my income. So I needed life insurance and Policy Genius made that so incredibly easy. And with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. On this episode of the Personal Finance Podcast, we're going to be talking to Nick Majuli about why you need to just keep buying. everybody and welcome to the personal finance podcast i'm your host andrew founder of mastermoney.co and today on the personal finance podcast we're gonna be talking to nick majuli about why you need to just keep buying if you have any questions hit me up on instagram at mastermoneyco and follow us on spotify apple podcasts or whatever podcast player you love listening to this podcast, too. And if you want to help out the show, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And don't forget to check us out on YouTube as well at Master Money on YouTube. So today, we're going to be talking to Nick Majuli. Now, I've referenced Nick Majuli's work a number of times on his blog, Dollars and Data. He has absolutely fantastic articles about a bunch of various things, from the stock market to investing to how to save money, all of these different things. And Nick just wrote a book called Just Keep Buying. And this book is absolutely incredible. I'm gonna be recommending this book for a very long time. And if you're new to personal finance, this is a book I definitely want you to check out because this covers everything from investing to saving to how to manage money to how to actually spend your money, which is a skill that you actually have to learn and how to invest your money. But what he does and the cool thing about this book is Nick backs it all up with data. So he has really cool stories in there, but he also backs up everything that he's talking about with real life 
data. And the data means everything when it comes to personal finance because you have to understand that, yes, personal finance can be personal, but at the same time, we have to look at the data to make sure that we're actually making the proper decisions. So today, we're going to be talking to Nick about should you focus on saving or increasing your income? We're going to be talking about the 2x rule when it comes to spending, how to invest your money in a recession, and should you buy the dip? And we're going to be talking about a number of other topics as well. So without further ado, let's welcome Nick to the Personal Finance Podcast. So Nick, welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. Appreciate it. So today, I want to talk about a number of things because you have a book called Just Keep Buying that's coming out. And I absolutely love the book. I think it's something I'm going to be recommending for a very long time because there's a ton of great content, especially for people who are interested in personal finance, which is obviously what we talk about all the time on this podcast. Um, and in your book, you have a really cool outlook on savings, specifically the method where you save when you can. And there's a lot of problems with traditional savings advice that a lot of people have. And I've been guilty of it for a long time as well. I tell people to save a certain percentage of their income. So what are some of the problems with traditional savings advice that you see? I think the issue is that income isn't static, right? We don't just have like, oh, we're always going to get paid this amount. And for a lot of people, yes, incomes can be static for, for certain periods of time. But I think a lot of the savings advice probably came from a time when there was like, you know, single income earner in a household, maybe like, you know, husband worked, wife stayed home, right? It was pretty stable. There were stable pensions. Now it's not really like that. There's usually two income earners. So there's more volatility in income. There's not people doing side hustles. It's like a whole thing. Like people have so many different sources of income now, and it's much more normalized to like have other ways that people make money that to say like, oh, you always have to save 20%. It's really tough, especially as life circumstances change. After having a child, for example, you may find it's more difficult to save 20% than, you know, beforehand. Exactly. And that's what your book kind of talks about as well as savings becomes seasonal. So for example, right now I have two kids that are under three. So my childcare has gone up significantly. So the savings rate in terms of how much you can save is only finite. So that's something that I've seen as well. So how do you determine how much you can save? I mean, the simple way is just, you know, your income minus your expenses, that's your savings, right? So if you're bringing in, you know, 10 grand a month, let's say, or, you know, and you're spending five grand, you know, after tax, right? then your savings five grand. Very simple, right? Take your income minus your expenses. Very straightforward formula. Um, and I think the question, right, is like, well, how do I save more? That's usually the next natural question. Well, how do you save? Well, how do you save more? Well, the question is you can either raise your income, you can lower your expenses, your spending, or you can do a bit of both. And I think the data generally shows that those people that have higher incomes find it easier to save than those with lower incomes. And then you're like, well, isn't that obvious, Nick, someone with more income? But we always talk about, oh, well, people, there's lifestyle creep and people end up spending all the money they make. And there are people like that. But generally, people don't spend that much more as they make more income. They do spend a little bit more, but they don't spend – their spending rises more slowly than their income. So that gap gets wider and that gap is your savings basically. So Absolutely. And the data that you put in the book uh, for those savings rate is really interesting. So would you say that the majority of people should focus on increasing their income over just their savings rate? Uh, well, I think – I mean – by increasing your income, you should be able to increase your savings rate. It's not guaranteed, but obviously if you're increasing your income and you're not spending all of that increase, you should be able to increase your savings rate, right? Just by definition. So I think that's the way to do it because, I mean, the data I used in the book was from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and it basically breaks it down by like, okay, there are these five, you know, groups of income. So like the bottom 20%, the 20th to 40th percentile, et cetera, all the way to the top 20. And it says like, okay, Looking at these groups, how much are they spending on each category? And you find that the people in the bottom 20%, basically the necessities eat their entire paycheck. They don't have enough to make it. So that's people like making low income. That's like obviously includes students, people with no income as well. So it's not just like completely people with low paying jobs. It's a mix of different um, households in there. 
But generally, like the necessities eat their paycheck whole, right? So they can't save. It's really impossible. There's not much to cut. And I even show numbers like, how, where are you going to cut? I say, where are you going to cut from here? And a lot of people are going to read this and be like, uh, yeah, I don't know where I would cut exactly because you can't cut. So I think it's not great advice for them. I think the true advice you need to say is like, okay, well, how do you grow your income over time so that you don't have to worry about cutting as much? I think that's the key. Exactly. And I completely agree as well, because increasing your income, you can do that over time exponentially, whereas you have your necessities and that's what you have to have there. And you can't really cut back from some of those necessities. So if someone wants to start to increase their income, what are some ways that they can actually go ahead and do that? So there's a couple different ways to do it. I think the simplest way is to like kind of sell your time or expertise. That's usually the starter way. Like, oh, I'm just going to Whatever that means, I mean, for some people that means driving Uber, for some people that means like tutoring somebody, whatever, like there's certain things that you may have expertise in that you can sell. And so that's usually the easy way. And that's as a side hustle, by the way, right? Outside of like, you know, your main job, we're going to get to in a second. So that's one way, kind of sell your time expertise. You can think about like selling, you know, a skill or service, right? So that's like, it's going to be linked to your time, but not necessarily if you get good enough at something, you're like, I'm just going to sell you the service. And if you get more efficient at it, it's not really necessarily based on your time like it used to be. It's not like an hourly rate. It's just like, I create this thing for you. I do this thing for you, right? The next idea is to teach people things, you know, especially with a lot of stuff going online, there's like online learning. That's where you can scale, you can start, you know, spreading that time you spend on something and scale it to more people. There's also like creating products, right? Create a product that people like, whether that's a physical product or a digital product. Now with places like Gumroad, you can sell digital products online straight to consumers. So that's another thing to do. And then lastly, the last is like climb the corporate ladder, which is like, I know people, there's a lot of like this whole, like what I call VC or entrepreneurship superiority complex, where it's like, oh, everyone has to be their own boss and have their own business. I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of people that build wealth just by working for other people. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. And most entrepreneurs, you actually look at the data, most entrepreneurs are older, not just because like, A, they have more experience, so they know how to start a business. Most people when they're 22 don't know how to start a business. We're not the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, right? So that's rare already. So by the time you get older, you're going to have more experience and you're going to have money to start a business. Usually it's very, you know, it takes money or some resources, right? So most people are starting businesses. The average age of an entrepreneur is something like 40 or something. They're much older. So I think this whole like, oh, I can't climb the corporate ladder. Like, no, you definitely can. Doesn't mean you have to do it forever. But I mean, it's a very valid way to build wealth. And there's a lot of people that have done that. And so to downplay that, I think is not fair. I completely agree. And I think most people should start at the place they spend most of their time, which is learning to negotiate their salary and start at their job. And then over time, you can start those side hustles and things as well, because having those both combined, you know, the side hustle will allow you that freedom later on over time if you build it up enough. But in addition, starting at your job really allows you to kind of do it where you focus most of your time. Yeah, I agree. So I want to shift this over slightly to you have a really cool rule about spending money. So you have a trick called the 2x rule that kind of removes guilt from spending. And I love that idea. Because a lot of people struggle with guilt when they start to learn how to kind of spend their money. So can you explain the 2x rule and how it works? Yeah, the 2x rule is very simple. And basically, it's like if you're going to splurge on something, now what do you define as a splurge? Every person's different. For one person, it might be spending $100 like on a nice, I don't know, I'm trying to maybe you could go to a nice restaurant or something. I want to spend 100 bucks to, to buy this special thing, whatever. For some person, it might be, you know, a nice set of shoes or a nice, I don't know, a car. It could be it could be whatever size, whatever you consider a splurge. That's what a splurge is. As long as if you feel that, like, oh, I feel like I'm spending too much, that's a splurge. The 2x rule basically says take that amount of money, whatever it is, it's 100 bucks, save 2x of that. So maybe $200. And with that other 100, you either invest it or you can donate it. There's different things you can do with it. So that's kind of the key, right? You, just, you save 200 bucks, 100 goes to investing, 100 used to buy the splurge purchase, right? And so therefore, you kind of get rid of your guilt because not only are you spending on yourself, but then you're like, hey, I'm investing for my future or I'm donating to a good cause. So there's ways to kind of, you know, get over that mental guilt. And I think that's the way we can do it. 
Absolutely. And I love that tactic, especially if you feel guilty because you're at least putting extra dollars towards your freedom later on in life. So, mm-hmm. and then one thing we talk about in this podcast all the time is lifestyle creep. When your income creeps up, I believe you should enjoy some of that money over time. But the key here is be careful how much of it we spend. So you have a really great chapter in your book about lifestyle creep. So how much do you think that we should spend as our income increases? So the how the how it works in the book, I assume you're kind of in a steady state of like, hey, I'm on a decent track to retirement. I'm saving enough, whatever. You're on some decent track, right? And then there's this, we'll call it a positive shock as economists call it, but that just means you got a bonus, you got a raise, you have no more money, right? And so a lot of personal finance experts say, no, don't let your lifestyle creep at all. Save 100% of it. And I'm saying generally for most people, if you look at the data on how have we run a simulation of this, you only need to save about half of it. If you save half, you can let the other half kind of creep upward and you'll be fine. Why does that make sense? Because generally, if you think about this, like if you're saving half, that other half is going to be spent. So now your lifetime spending has increased a little bit. So you have to probably save a little bit more to offset that, right? And so I just ran a simulation that does it and it's a very simple thing and it also kind of matches the 2X rule ironically. It's like, oh, half's for me, half's for future me. It's the same thing when you're doing the 2X rule and that's just by chance. I didn't like pick the numbers for that. That just kind of came out that way when I ran the lifestyle creep simulation. But yeah, I think that's the thing to think about. And the other thing which is kind of more interesting in that chapter is those people who are high savers who save a very high amount of their income, when they get a raise or a bonus, they have to even save even more of that to like stay on track. And you're saying, well, why does that make sense? Because when you're a high saver, you're spending very little relative to your savings, right? But when you get a big raise or something, now you're spending a lot more. It's really the effect of on spending that messes with you. So you have to think about your spending and how that goes out into like the rest of your life, right? So if you, even some simple habit, like, you know what, I'm gonna buy a latte every day. That's fine and all, but if you think, if you do that every day over the course of your life, that could be a lot of money. So you have to think about how your spending changes and how that's gonna affect your entire life. So. Absolutely. And I, I agree. I think that was so interesting through that chapter. And I think it's something that a lot of people should be thinking through as they get those raises as well. So when it comes to debt, you talk about something where credit card debt is not always bad. And when you talk about that, it got my attention right away. So why is credit card debt not always bad? So it's generally bad, but it's not always bad. And why it's not right. always bad is because I think there are certain people in certain circumstances where we're told never use a credit card, never have this for anything. And I think there are certain circumstances where if you need it, it could be useful. And so in the empirical literature of you know talking about this stuff, they call these people borrower savers. Now, what's a borrower saver? That's someone, let's say you have $1,000 in your checking account, but you have a $500 in credit card debt. Now, you're rationally saying, why would I be paying 20% on this $500 credit card debt, You know, 20% a year, APR or whatever, when I have $1,000? I should just pay off the debt and just have $500 in cash, right? That just like makes more sense, right? Well, the issue is not necessarily about that. It's more about the liquidity. What if I have like a $700 expense next week, right? I can't use the, maybe can't use the credit card. Maybe I can't do something else to get that money back. So having the cash could be very useful. So those people who are called borrower savers, they use credit card debt and they're using it because they don't have a lot of money. So in certain circumstances, this type of debt can be useful. Now I'm not, now I want those people to get out of that situation, obviously. I'm not saying, oh, I have a ton of income, I have a ton of savings, let's use credit cards now. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's just in certain circumstances, it can be useful. Obviously, that's an exception. Generally, credit card debt is, is not good for you because of the high interest rates. But there are cases where you can use debt if you're in a jam and like, hey, if you have to do it, it's probably more important to do that instead of beating yourself up about not using a credit card and then possibly being in an even worse situation, you know, in that case. Absolutely. I completely agree as well. And as we're looking at debt here, I want to also talk about student loan debt. And you have a lot of really good data in the book about student loan debt and the return on college and things like that. So when does it make sense for someone to take out student loan debt? 
Yeah, so I think you have to think about, I mean, I'm just gonna tell you the theoretical framework. I'm not gonna spit out the equation here. In there, there's an equation I give to how you can roughly value this, but basically it's like, okay, let's say you didn't go to college, right? Try and imagine what your career might be and not just exact career, but just how much you might make, right? I don't know if you don't have a good comparable, try and find something like assume you're the median person. Okay, given this, my age, all these types of interests, how much would I be making over the course of my life, right? You have some amount, right? Let's say it's 50,000 a year. Let's say, okay, times 40 years. That's I think what, $200,000 if I'm doing that correctly, right? Or, I'm sorry, $2 million, I apologize. So your total lifetime earnings is 2 million, right? But now let's say I go to college. What's my lifetime earnings gonna be? Let's say you double that to $4 million, right? So now that $2 million over the lifetime is $4 million. Okay, we've doubled that, so that's like a $2 million. Does that mean I'm willing to pay $2 million for college? No, not at all, right? You have to discount all that money back. You have to assume, you have to give up the amount of time you were in school, right? So there's a formula I use for this. But basically it's just like, if it's going to increase your earnings enough to offset the cost of the debt, then you should probably do it. Now, getting the particulars matter, devil's in the details here, but I have a formula in there which basically says like, take about you know how much you're gonna lose by going to college and then how much it's gonna cost you out of pocket, the actual out of pocket cost, not like the estimated cost. Cause you know, all these colleges say, oh, it's 50 grand a year to go here, but how many people are actually paying 50 grand? It's very small, you know, there's like discounts and scholarships, there's a lot of stuff they give out. So you're not actually paying the full cost for some of these things. So know the actual cost, kind of look at the prices and everything, and you have to figure out that difference, you know, and that's, if it's worth it, if it's more than it, then it's probably worth it to do. And obviously, I think the other thing too is, you know, it's your life. And if you really want to get an education and do that, like, I think you need to do that because, you know, it's going to be something that you're going to be able to benefit from in the future, right? So it's not always dollars and cents, but, you know, for some people it might be. So just think about that, you know, before you go and, you know, get a degree in underwater basket weaving. It's the joke that's said, you know, out there, so. Exactly. And I get that question all the time from a lot of students, even in high school, deciding if they want to go to college. And I think they should run that formula for the, especially if they're thinking through that process, because I think that's extremely valuable. So that is something that I think that they could definitely utilize for sure. The key to winning in any business is making sure you have the right business partner. An example is Procter & Gamble or Ben & Jerry. But what about the perfect partners when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million dollars stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. And most people know one of your biggest struggles when it comes to starting an online business is finding new customers and Shopify can help you do that. And what I love about Shopify is no matter how big you wanna grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash PFP, all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash PFP now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash PFP. Now is a great time of year to get your finances in order. And no matter what your financial goals are this year, when you use Chime's online checking account, you can cross all those financial to-dos off your list. Chime's online checking account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-fee overdraft up to $200. Plus, get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go 24-7. And you get access to over 60,000 ATMs. So start building your credit and open a Chime checking account with at least $200 qualifying direct deposit to get started. Get started at chime.com PFP. That's chime.com PFP.
Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank, NA, or Stride Bank, NA, members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Early access to direct deposit funds depends on payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. And if you need to hire, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. And they have a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. So ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash personal finance. Just go to Indeed.com slash personal finance right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash personal finance. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the hardest things about managing your money is figuring out where it's all going. And most of us are trying to save for several goals at once, which can feel like a daunting task to see if you're on track or even on pace to accomplishing your goals. But there is a tool that makes it so much easier, and it's called Monarch Money. They help you track your money flow without taking a ton of time and energy. And Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. And you can invite them with an extra account with their own login at no extra cost to collaborate with you. And Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can create custom budgets, set notifications, and you can set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications. And after trying Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash PFP. That's M-O-N- A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash P-F-P for your extended 30-day free trial. So I want to shift it to investing because I love your writing on investing, especially from your blog, reading it for years and years, and you have some of the best investing data that I've ever read. So when it comes to investing, why is it so important to start as early as possible? So I think there's two main reasons. The first one, which I'm assuming most of your audience has probably heard already, which is about compounding, right? People have heard, you know, you've heard maybe the analogy of like the chessboard with the rice. You put one grain of rice on the first piece of the chessboard and then it doubles and there's two grains of rice and then four. And then by the end of the chessboard, it's like more rice than it's ever been consumed in human history or something like some really outrageous number, right? Something like that. I can't remember what the exact uh, analogy is. So compounding matters, right? So when you start earlier, you have more time for that money to compound. So for example, let's say you were to save the same amount of money every year for 40 years. And let's say you got a 7% return. So let's say you saved, I'm just gonna throw a number out there, $10,000 a year for 40 years. By the end of that 40 years, the final amount of money you had, half of that, half of that final value came from the first 10 years of savings. The other half comes from the last 30 years. And you're like, what? Like, how is it the first 10 years has the same final output as the next 30 years, right? So you're like, what? That makes no sense. Of course, I'm going to save earlier. When you just look at the math, it's very obvious that you should be saving earlier. So that's the first one. It's just the compounding effect. The second one is behavioral. And I think it's just because like, 
saving money is hard, compounding money is easy. Like I don't have to do anything for my stocks to keep growing. I just sit there and they just keep growing over time. As long as I don't sell, I'm not saying it's easy to hold forever through market crashes. That's not necessarily easy, but it's easier than like having to go out, work, save money, not, you know, have purchasing guilt. Oh, I have to do all this. You know, saving money is much more difficult. There's a lot more decisions along the way. Versus compounding money, once it's invested, you kind of can just set it and forget it. And assuming the stock market's going to grow wealth like it has historically over a long time period, you know, 30, 40 year period, you're probably going to build your wealth just from doing that. So that's the second reason why you should start earlier, because it's just if you bake all that in early, you're not going to have to do all that work for the next 30 or as much work in the next 30 years as you did in the first 10. Exactly. We've done episodes like how long it'll take you to become a millionaire if you start saving by age. And we've done it where, you know, at age 20, you have to save $97 a month, become a millionaire by 65. But by mid 20s and 30s, you have to save a couple hundred dollars. And by the 40s, you're in the thousands. So it's just so much easier if you start earlier. It's so much easier on your life as well. So another episode that we've done is lump sum investing versus dollar cost averaging. And I referenced your article on that in part of that episode as well, because I think you have some amazing data on that. So when investors are just starting out or they get a large lump sum, should they invest it all at once or should they dollar cost average it? So I have a little bit of a beef to pick with the term dollar cost averaging. Only I actually love the term dollar cost averaging, sure. but there's technically two definitions. I just want to say this briefly because when people say the term and look, we read the book, I use dollar cost averaging in what I think is the correct definition versus the incorrect. So the first okay. term of dollar cost averaging, which has come up by Benjamin Graham, was like, if you're buying over time, you're just buying every time you get paid, let's say in your 401k, you're buying every, but you're investing the money as soon as you get it. That's the point. That's what dollar cost averaging is, the traditional definition. What you're talking about right now is you have a bunch of money. Let's say you have $100,000, like you sold a business, or you got an inheritance. And the question is, do you put that money in right away or do you slowly kind of get into the market? You wait in, you average what I call in the book averaging in. I didn't want to use the term dollar cost averaging because it's so confusing. So I'm saying averaging in. So you're asking, should I buy now or should I average in? And on average, about, you know, over roughly 80% of the time, it's better to just buy now, just to put that lump sum into the market. Now, of course, you're like, well, isn't that riskier? Well, yes, it generally is. Because if you buy a low-cost ETF or index fund or something, and then it crashes, yes, you're going to feel bad that like, oh, I could have got a better price, whatever, et cetera. But the only time, here's my counter to that, the only time when averaging in beats buying now is when you're averaging into a falling market. And so most of the time, the time when this actually works, it's the time when you're least enthusiastic to do it. Like the market's fall. Imagine like, you know, it's February, 2020 again, and it's late February, 2020, the market's going down. Then it's down 10% in a day, then 8%, then another, you know, it's going down. And the question is, are you willing to buy while it's going down and down and down? And if you're one of those people that is, then okay, the average in method could work for you. But for a lot of people, you're going to get scared and then not buy and then wait in cash and try and time and do all these games. And because of that, you're probably going to still underperform. So that's why I'm like, just buy now. Just get invested now. It's on average, you're going to do better. And um, it's behaviorally, I think, a little bit easier than trying to like buy as the market's dropping because that's the only time it actually outperforms the other method. Exactly. And it's really, really difficult, obviously, to figure out when the market is going to drop and try to time that market. And mm -hmm. speaking of the market dropping, you have one of my favorite articles on buying the dip. And that's one of my uh, favorite things that you've written. And you go deeper in the book as well on that. Should we or should we not wait to buy the dip when we're investing? So there's two things here. Holding cash and waiting for a dip is a very bad idea because generally, I remember this is on the data, the data shows this, right? Markets are going up and to the right. They're increasing over time. This is generally true of most you know, equities, most asset classes. This is what happens. Not all, I mean, asset, income producing assets at least, like you know, equities, uh, REITs, things like that. 
are generally increasing in price over time because of inflation and a host of other issues, right? So if that's true by holding cash and waiting for a dip, most of the time on average, you look at the data and I show there's this, there's a whole chapter, I think it's chapter 14 discusses this. When you go to buy that dip, whatever threshold you say, let's say 10, 20%, whatever, usually you're buying at a higher price than when you could have originally invested. And let me just give you an example to make it a little bit easier. So actually, roughly five years ago, I actually wrote a blog post called Just Keep Buying, which basically became the intro for the book. So it's literally five years ago to the day when the book comes out, kind of wild any irony. Anyways, I remember writing it and I got a couple comments from people saying like, you know, valuations are too high. I'm not buying. I'm going to wait till there's a dip. Let's say this person held cash and just waited and waited. So I'm not waiting until there's a big dip, right? And now when do they get this dip? Three years later, it's March 2020, right? And now the market's down. Let's say they actually perfectly time it. I'm giving them this fairy dust of like perfect timing, right? They perfectly time it and they buy it on March 23rd, 2020 when the market was down 33%. Big dip, the biggest dip we've had since 08. They perfectly timed the dip too. So that's obviously impossible. But let's just say they did it. Even if they had done that and bought on March 23rd, 2020, they still would have bought at prices 7% higher than what they could have bought in 2017. And that's the example I give because all the people said, oh, I'm just going to wait till there's a dip, ended up buying at a higher price than the people who just bought and stopped trying to time the market, right? Remember, that's assuming perfect timing. So there's so much assumptions I have to make for these dip buyers, and I, they still can't win, right? It's like crazy. And I kind of show that in the chapter 14. I talk about that a bit. So that's kind of why buy the dip's a bad strategy. However, conditional on that, that's chapter 14. In chapter 17, I say, if you're in a dip, conditional, like you're already in the dip, you haven't been saving cash to do it, but you happen to get an influx of cash. Let's say you, I don't know, you sell a business and by chance the market crashed right then. Then yes, buy the dip. Buying the dip is good if you happen to have cash, but you shouldn't wait for it. That's the difference, right? Like obviously buying the dips, it's better because the price is on average lower than if you assume it recovers, it's a really good thing. But the whole premise is you shouldn't wait for it because these big dips are rare. So don't wait for it. But if you happen to be in one, yes, buy one, like buy the dip. It's a good thing, but don't wait to buy the dip. That's the difference. <laughs> exactly. And early on, I can remember countless times when I started investing, I would just wait for stocks to come down and they would just keep going higher and higher and higher. And when they finally did come down, it was much higher than I was waiting, just like you're talking about. So I've done that over and over again. I don't make the mistake anymore because uh, now I know what the data says, but mm -hmm. I did that over and over and over again. I think a lot of investors do the same thing. So Speaking of dips, let's say there's a, a recession that hits. And what a lot of investors do in recessions is they start to panic. So how should investors actually invest during a crisis like a recession? Yeah, so I don't think you should worry as much about timing. Of course, during, I think during recessions and things like that, I think the thing you have to worry more about is like your personal life, your job, your income security, more than what your investment portfolio is doing, to be honest. And that's that's why these recessions actually matter. That's why they, I'm not saying like, oh, who cares about a dip? Like no big deal. Like the dip's are important because of what's happening in the real economy, not what's not what's happening to asset prices. Those are kind of a reflection of the real economy, right? So I think the thing to just remember is like, on average, markets tend to recover. Sometimes it takes a long time. For example, Japan in 89, it took, you know, 30, it's basically kind of almost recovered now to where it was. It's basically been 30 years, but yeah, 30 years later, the market hadn't recovered. So there are exceptions to the rule, like Japan 89, you know, Greece 08, Russia 2022, what happened this year? It went down 80% a month. Like there are cases where certain markets do have these like prolonged periods. You know, even the US had a technically a 13 year period where, you know, from Jan 2000 to roughly like 2013, 13 year period where after, you know, adjusting for inflation and dividends, it was technically underwater, you know? So there are these cases where this happens, but on average, if you're a diversified investor, you have other types of investments you should be fine because you're not just going to be in one market the whole time, right? And so like people that talk about Japan, it's very interesting because it's like 
oh, but what about Japan in 89? It's like, yeah, that unlucky person that sold their business, but put it all into the market. Like I say, you should buy now, right? Put it all into the market right in 89, literally at the peak at one of the most crazy valuations and maybe the history, probably the biggest bubble in the history of asset bubbles, in my opinion, did that, then yes, they would have done very badly. But I even show in the book, if you had just invested over time to the Japanese market, like, yes, it was not great, but there are times when you were still above your cost basis, you made a little bit of money, right? So that's kind of the thing. It's not great what happened, but at the same time, like, you could have been okay off, you know, even in one of the worst markets ever, just by buying over time instead of putting it all in, you know, at some one snapshot, which is very rare anyways. People don't invest like that. Most people don't just put all their money in and then they're done, right? You're buying over time. So exactly. It's just keeping your emotions out of it, sticking to your investment plan, staying consistent over time. That's the most important piece of that as well. Yeah. So you have a whole chapter in the book about when is the best time to buy a stock. So when would you say the best time is to buy a stock? I mean, sooner rather than later. I mean, it depends. Like, do you mean an individual stock? Like, or do you mean a broad basket? I think you should be buying a broad basket. And I have a whole chapter on this where I talk about why you shouldn't buy individual stocks. And it doesn't even necessarily have to do with performance. It's more to do with like your, you know, we can get into that if you want. But I think though, when's the best time to buy is generally sooner. Because if, I mean, think about the premise of investing. This is like always funny to me. Like people are like, I'm going to wait for the dip. It's like, the reason you're investing is because you're expecting the price to go up over time. I don't know how long you're expecting to go, but you're expecting it to go up. You're expecting it to grow your wealth, right? So by waiting, it makes no sense because it's like antithetical or what I don't know what the word I'm thinking of. It's the antithesis of the point of investing, which is to grow your wealth. So you're like, oh, I think this is going to go up, but I'm going to wait. And then I think it's going to go up. It's like, you know, if it's going, if you think it's going up to the right, which most of these things are, then like, you know, you shouldn't be waiting you know, to invest. So that's, you know, I say, if you wouldn't wait a hundred years, like I, the simple thought experiment, I said, imagine you had a million dollars you had to invest and you have two choices. You either put it all into the market now, or you put in, you know, 1% of it every year for the next hundred years. What would you do? You know, you was like, well, that's obvious. I wouldn't wait a hundred years. By the time I got you know, due to inflation, I'd lose most of my money. Right? So if you wouldn't wait a hundred years. Don't wait a hundred months or a hundred weeks or a hundred days. Right? That's just kind of get in now. That's the simple idea there. And you talked about having a basket of stocks, and that's what we talk about as well. A lot of times, that's the way I invest, and I love to invest in index funds, ETFs, mm -hmm. things like that as well. Why do you mm -hmm. think that people should be investing in baskets of stocks? Yeah, I think just because they're diversified, and I mean, you're getting the diversification already. It's cheap to do that, and two, you're not going to – I think a lot of this comes down to identity, right? So when you buy like the like, – I don't know, the S&P 500 passive index fund. I'm just Let's just talk U.S. stocks, right? I know there's international stuff. Let's just do U.S. just to make this simple. Sure. When you buy the S&P 500, that's your default choice. That's the choice that's just, that most investment you know, society has said, like, that's the default. And everyone compares it to the default, right? So when you do that, if the market goes down, you're not going to be like, oh, my God, I'm an idiot. Like, you're going to say, oh, the market went. It's not your fault. It's, like, out of your control. But when you go and say, you know what? I'm going to have a, a portfolio of, you know, 50% Amazon and 50% Apple or something. And those are very good stocks. I would have done well over the last decade. But when you go to do something like that, you're now linking your identity and your choice to that. So if that underperforms, you're going to feel like an idiot. And you're going to be like, why did I do that, right? And so you're going to beat yourself up mentally. And there's all sorts of games you're going to play. So I think the simpler thing is like, don't identify with your investments. Like it's not about being right. It's about getting rich, right? And that's, I mean, that's what I think you really care about. If you want to just, if you want to buy individual stocks for fun, maybe put a small portion of your portfolio, go ahead, be my guest. Like, I think it's great to do that. I think it's fine if you want to get that out of your system, but don't put most of your wealth in there because A, you're going to identify with it and B, you're not going to know if you're good. You might just be lucky. And that's the real thing. And most things in life, you can identify skill pretty easily. For example, if me and, you know, LeBron James went to the basketball court and LeBron James, let's say he wasn't famous, but he saw his skill, you could tell within a minute or two minutes that he has skill and I don't. It'd be very obvious, right? So 
But with investing, that's not true. You know, you I can pick stocks and you can pick stocks. And after a year, if I beat you, am I better than you? Do you know? You don't know, right? Because I could have just gotten lucky, right? And so that's the difference between investing and like most other crafts is the feedback loop is very long. It might take you five, 10 years, 20 years before you figure out if you're good. And secondly, it's not a game that I think people should be playing. Like spend your time doing something more productive, you know, just set it and forget it. Do a nice, passive, easy, low cost index fund and then focus on other things where you know you can add value. You don't know if you can add value with investing. Exactly. And you could focus your time on increasing your income or anything else that we've talked yep. about here, because I think 99% of people just aren't willing to do the work that they have to put in to invest in individual stocks. Yes. You look at somebody like Warren Buffett, who reads 500 pages a day of 10Ks. And mm -hmm. so you look at something like that, and it's something where most people don't have the time or the energy to be able to actually do that. They can focus their time where they spend most of it every single day at their job or wherever else to increase that income. Mm -hmm. So one of the difficult things for investors is figuring out when to sell. Now, your book is called Just Keep Buying. So is there ever a time investors should sell outside of obviously drawing down for retirement? So outside of you know, obviously drawing down for retirement, would I say like to fund your lifestyle expenses? That's one of those reasons. Like, I mean, the whole point of money is so you can live the life you want to live. It's not just to acquire assets, just to it. There's no game here. You're going to win at the end. You know, it's like you don't get a prize or something if you die with more money than being the richest person in the cemetery, right? So besides selling for like your life needs, which is like, hey, I need to do this or that. There's two other times when I think it's okay to sell. One's for rebalancing. There are cases when you might need to rebalance and like, oh, wow, this asset went up a ton and I need to sell some of it down to kind of add back to get closer to my allocation, I think makes sense for me, right? And so that's one case. Obviously, there's tax implications there. So if you can, I talk about something in the book called an accumulation rebalance, which means instead of selling the asset, like let's say there's asset A and B, and A, let's say, had a 60% weight and B has a 40% weight, right? But now A, because A has done really well, A has a 90% weight and B has a 10%. And you want to get that back to 60-40. So you'd have to sell some of A and then put it into B, right? Instead of doing that, what you could do over time is A starts to get bigger and bigger. You can actually start stop putting money into A and start putting money into B to kind of rebalance it back. You're basically buying more of the underweight asset to try and get the weights back into alignment. That's a way so you don't have to sell anything. There's no tax implications. That's the second reason. So outside of funding your lifestyle was number one. Second one's for rebalancing. The third is where I say getting out of a concentrated or losing position. So if you happen to like work at a company where you've got a lot of stock in something, or you bought something and you're just very concentrated now, it's very large part of your portfolio. It's kind of like a rebalance in the sense of like, I think you should sell some of that out. You know, let's say you're a company IPO, you have all this private stock that's now public. I say you should sell some of that to lock up a certain level of lifestyle. And then obviously anything above that you want to let ride, that's fine. But I think you should kind of lock up a certain level of security or a little a minimum lifestyle. And then beyond that, you have to figure out what you want to do with the rest of that. Because I don't think you should sell everything because you're going to have regret. If you sell it all and then it triples, you're going to be like, I'm an idiot. I should. Why did I sell the stock in this great company? You're going to feel stupid if you do that. And then if you hold it all and it goes to zero, you might feel stupid too. So you got to just kind of find a good balance that works for you. So I used to be like, oh yeah, sell all of your concentrated stock, get out of it. You want to be diversified 100%. I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think I've rethought that as I've, as I've thought about these types of things. So yeah, concentrated position and losing positions. If you're in something that you're like, wow, this has been losing money for, you know, not just like a couple years or a decade, like multiple decades, you realize like why I'm like, for example, I used to be in gold and I was like, why am I in gold? Like if you look at the history, like it has from the data, it has 20 year periods where it's underwater. And it's like, even if gold could be a decent diversifier in certain circumstances, I don't mess with it because I know after 15 or 20 years of that, I'd be like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this thing. that's not building wealth at all, you know, and that would be a problem for me. Exactly. Those losers are like the example I always give 
is someone who's a dividend investor, if they're focused on that growing dividend over time and that dividend gets cut and it just stays cut and it doesn't grow over time, then they need that's a that'd be a loser for them to go ahead and sell if that's part of their strategy. So looking within your strategy is the big piece as well. Um, yeah. But those are all great examples as well. So Nick, these are questions that we ask all of our guests. I wanted to ask you mm -hmm. some of these as well. So what are some of your favorite books that you've read? So, I mean, if I could, I could give you investment books and those are very obvious. I can say, you know, okay, we read William Bernstein, you know, he's got uh, the intelligent asset allocator. That's great. He's got like the investing for adults. It's like really good investment stuff. Or if we talk personal finance, I could say, hey, read, you know, read Meet Seth, he'll teach you to be rich, read Tiffany Alici, get good with money, right? It depends what I kind of need a little bit more specificity there. But I think the thing I want to kind of give out to your listeners is, you know, of course, there's a lot of great money books out there. And we can, you know, I can talk about tons of them, you know, Jason Zweig, you know, Morgan Housel's got a great book, you know, Psychology of Money, or, you know, Your Money in Your Brain with Zweig, right? There's so many of these great books. I think what you should do is read a lot of nonfiction, but that's not about investing. I think that you can really learn principles in there that end up teaching about other things. I think there's a great book out there, for example, called Deep Survival. And that's about how people survive. But if you actually look at some of the tactics and things in there, a lot of these things can be applicable to investing, right? In terms of how you keep yourself sane and all this type of stuff. I don't want to get into all that, but that's a good book. Um, there's a great data book out there called Nobody Lies. And that's just about like kind of Google search data and stuff. And it's not even that it's related to investing. It's just interesting. I think you need to expose yourself to different ideas. So the thing I would say is like, yeah, read read about, you know, non-investing topics. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in finance, you probably consume a lot of financial content as it is. So try and diversify your, you know, information diet. So that's what I would say there. And in terms of resources out there, I usually do a lot of reading. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I will usually read them if they have transcripts just because like that's how I am. I'm not a like an audio learner. I'm more of a visual learner. So I do a lot of reading. I read a lot of blogs. I'm on Twitter a lot. So I'm reading blogs and stuff. So that's a big information source for me. Exactly. And I completely agree with that as well. Reading books outside of just the investing realm or even just outside of the business realm, I've gotten so many ideas from that because I try to read a book a week. And I've gotten so many ideas and learned so many things just from outside of that that actually apply to investing in personal finance. So that is definitely mm -hmm. something I would recommend doing as well. So this is the big one, Nick, that we ask everybody. What does wealth mean to you? So I think for me, I mean, wealth is really just about like living the life you want to live. And so that's the point of, I think, accumulating this wealth is so you can live life you want to live. So, for example, I live in New York City. I do not own a car. I'm 32 years old. I've never owned a car. I have a driver's license, so I can drive legally, but I've never owned a car. I don't plan on owning a car anytime soon unless I like end up going to the suburbs or something, but I may never own a car for all I know, right? So it's one of those things where like, I don't care about owning a car. I don't care about having super fancy clothing, right? But I do like going to restaurants and New York City is like a great place for that. There's so much food, there's a great food culture here. I'm a bit of a foodie. So for me, I don't necessarily spend a lot of money on, I said, on a car or insurance or clothing, but I will go out and spend probably an exorbitant, what people, most of your audience would consider an exorbitant amount of money on restaurants. My restaurant budget is very high relative to most Americans. And that's because that's what I like to do. That's my life. That's what I like to do. I like to go out with people and spend time with people. I'm extroverted and that's kind of my thing. I think the important thing is like figuring out what you want. So for wealth for you is going to be different than wealth for me. For you, it might be like, I like a fancy car. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a lot of people that shame people into material like, oh, you can't have a fancy handbag. You can't have a fancy car or something like that. I think that's wrong because not everyone's the same. I think when they say like, the well, the data shows that people like experiences more than goods or than physical goods. Well, yeah, the data is probably showing that because most people are extroverted. Now take introverts. What do they value? Like they may value something different than extroverts. They may not value experiences in the same way. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's just a theory I have that like when you use the average result, the average result may not apply to you, right? So for in my case, 
I do happen to like experiences more than physical goods. That's fine for me. So I, most of my money I'm spent is on an experience that I have where I have a memory of it, maybe a picture at most, but I don't have anything I can take with me outside of like, you know, whatever the calories I had at the meal. So I think it's just about figuring out what you want. And this is the harder problem. This is more of a general philosophical question. It's like something we've been debating for, you know, millennia, like, well, you know, know thyself, right? This is a philosophical question. What do you want out of life? And so wealth is figuring that out, figuring out what you want, and then using your money to do that. Exactly. I absolutely love that answer. And it's utilizing it as a tool to have the life that fulfills you. And that's kind of what we talk about all the time in this podcast as well. So Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people find more about you and your new book? Yeah. So my book can be found on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, Booktopia, a lot of different places. Um, and so it's just keep buying. You can find me there. And in addition, you can find me on Twitter. If you have a question for me, feel free to DM me. My DMs are open. My handle is at dollars and data, one word, dollars and data. You can find me there. And my blog, you know, is of dollarsanddata.com. So any questions you have, feel free. Trust me. I try to respond to every single DM. So I'll try to get back to you if I can and, you know, be happy to hear from you guys. Fantastic. And we'll link all of those down below in the show notes as well. So everybody can go ahead and check those out. Nick, thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation. I truly appreciate you coming on. Appreciate it, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone's heard the saying, you have to spend money to make money, but everything in life from travel to starting a business is expensive, which is why I want to tell you about a new podcast I love that will teach you all the tactics, tricks, and tips you need to upgrade your life, money, and even travel all while spending less and saving more. It's called all the hacks and it's a top ranked show hosted by my good friend, Chris Hutchins a financial optimizer, an entrepreneur who's racked up millions of points, and he sold two companies. And if you want to rethink the way you're spending money, you have to check out the episode 91 with Bill Perkins and why you should be optimizing for net fulfillment and not net worth and striving to die with zero. 
All the Hacks has something for everyone, and I'm sure you'll find a new tactic that you can apply to your own life, whether it's a money hack that increases your net worth or a routine change that boosts your productivity. So check out All the Hacks. That's All the Hacks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your wallet will thank you later.